0: Welcome back to the Scholar's Attic. This episode was originally recorded on February 2nd, 2021. There are some liner notes that may help explain some of the Uh, gross deciphering that I attempted with some of the captioning on some of these older cartoons, so if my in-class translations do not make any sense, especially since you are not looking at the original photograph, uh, then check the liner notes for that. Uh, The rest of this, I think, is pretty straightforward, so let's plug in. So, yellow journalism, Um, it's nothing new. Clickbait is nothing new. It actually starts in the late 1800s with a guy by the name of William Randolph Hearst. Now, this is the political cartoon that I showed you at the end of class the other day. And, um, you know, even though, you know, we've got references to the sinking of the USS Maine, uh, we've also got references to fact checking. And uh, a a clickbait and he still fits in the comic because everything old is new again. Um, There's a very famous song from the 1920s that had that as their byline, Um, but it is, it's nothing new. It's just taken on a new form for our own day and age. So yellow journalism. The origins come in the late 1800s, early 1900s, when William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer, yes, that Pulitzer, the guy for whom the the Pulitzer Prize is named, um, they ran competing newspapers. And the bottom line there in, in this competition was who would have the most sales. So there was this big push to sell the most newspapers. So if you're talking about the 1890s and pre-World War I, not only is there no internet, no television, no radio, I mean, there's not even radio at this point. If you're getting your news, you're getting it either firsthand from somebody who was there, you're getting a letter from somebody who is serving in the office or serving on the front lines, or you're reading it from the newspapers. I mean, that's it. That is your window on the world to find out what's happening in your own country, let alone anywhere else. Um, And so the more people who bought your newspapers, um, then the wider reach you had, the more influence you have. So it's the kind of thing that we see nowadays, people uh, buying up, uh, you know, websites even, um, let alone uh, magazines or, you know, there are some, some newspapers, old school newspapers that are still holding on and doing a halfway decent business in this day and age. Um, but, you know, television stations, radio stations, they still have their place and people buy these and they arrange the programming that they want on say their television network. And that influences the audience, whoever that audience is. Um, here, a couple of years ago, was it uh, two years ago, Mr. Earl, that uh, Barack Obama became a major shareholder in Netflix? Uh, yeah, it was right before he left office or right after. Yeah, right before right after. So about four, year, four years ago, four four and a half years ago. Mm-hmm. Michelle and Obama both have. Uh, rights to influence programming on Netflix. Yes, which means that um, part of the new Netflix programming that's coming on, uh, not to mention which um, shows cycle in or cycle out, they are um, approved or disapproved by the Obamas before that final decision is made. Food for thought. Um, so, but that's, that's the thing. So you get somebody who is a major shareholder in something like Netflix and they get a call, at least to a certain extent on what kind of programming is shown, what kind of programming is made for Netflix, then by default, you influence a pretty big group of people because Netflix is the original streaming service. And so, uh, people are, I mean, Netflix is sort of the default. Um, That's just where people, you know, if you're going to sign up for streaming media, most people start with Netflix. And I've lost track of like how many millions, and of course, it's expanded well beyond the United States. There's the British version of Netflix, and... You know, you can you can get it just about anywhere if you pay the right price and have the right app. Did I see a hand up over there? Okay, I thought I did. Sorry. So anyway, again, nothing new under the sun. Yellow journalism. This is the use of romance melodrama and mudslinging in order to sell papers. Um. You know, and it's not just romance per se, but even scandal okay scandal sells very well um I almost included a couple of front page uh, uh, spreads of the National Enquirer which I think may have gone the way of the dodo now it it may not be around anymore but if it's not like it hasn't been gone very long but that's something it was a staple in all the checkout lines at the grocery store and I, i saw one the other day when i was sifting through you know photos and things to put in this uh, PowerPoint and one of them, and this was from like 30 years ago, showed a much younger Hillary Clinton holding an alien baby and it had the caption, you know, Hillary Clinton gives birth to alien child. <laughs> and then there's like these salacious details on like some kind of intergalactic space affair that she's supposed to have had, which, you know, in 2021, I You know, maybe that's not as far-fetched as it once was, but, you know, still it's like these ridiculous, over-the-top, at least once a year the Enquirer would run a full um, page, uh, full color spread in the middle with the big headlines about Elvis is still alive, he has been cited, here are the proofs. And of course you have all of these aging Elvis fans who are like, oh, where, where? And they're buying up the uh, the National Enquirer and it's all just a load of bunk, but it's those big lurid headlines that just, they would just fly off the shelves. Um, just They sold like hotcakes. And yellow journalism is largely to blame for a lot of things, but originally, the thing that it is said to have set off originally was the Spanish-American War of the 1890s. Um, There is a story, and uh, do you all know who Frederick Remington is? Okay, if you don't know who he is, you've probably seen his statuary. He was an amazing artist, uh, drawing, painting, and sculpture. So the most famous uh, sculptures, bronze sculptures of the Old West there's one famous one called uh the dying cowboy uh, one called the mountaineer and and they're these beautiful sculptures of usually a man astride a horse or with his horse and and they're at these impossible angles uh the the, the one called the mountaineer is just this this spur of rock and then the horse is like doing that 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 very careful downward inching that you would have to do on such a steep slope. And the cowboy is astride him. And the whole thing, like there's no, there's nothing holding it up. It's just this little spur of rock. And everything is so carefully engineered that it looks like it ought to collapse. But it doesn't. It's just, everything is perfectly balanced, perfectly sculpted. Think Norman Rockwell with sculpting. I just absolutely brilliant. And he did a lot of drawings for the newspapers at the time because even though you could put photographs in the newspapers by then, it was expensive and so they were very careful to only put in a few, usually on the very front page. And then people like Frederick Remington would do the illustrations. Well, uh, at the time he worked for Hearst's um, uh, newspaper and Hearst called him to the side, he says, I need you to you know, go here, go here, do this, and draw pictures about the war in this country. And uh, Remington was like, well, I haven't heard anything about it. I don't think there's a war there, like all of the contents, I mean, I've been talking to these journalists, these people, and like there's nothing going on there. And Hearst said, don't worry about it, you provide the pictures, I'll provide the war, and that's basically what happened. Is by manipulating the media, manipulating the headlines, the illustrations, and the timing of these editions of his newspaper, William Randolph Hearst is basically he's credited uh, for good or ill for having started the Spanish-American War. Other political cartoons we have uh, here to the left. A 1906 cartoon blasting Hearst for his yellow journalism tactics. Um, The the Wizard of Ooze. Um, Of course the book that would have been published just the year before this one was The Wizard of Oz. So instead of The Wizard of Oz we have The Wizard of Ooze. So taking popular literature and then twisting that around for a political cartoon. Um, Of course that one is making fun of William Randolph Hearst, obviously that's not running in his newspaper. Then we have, um, over here to the right, an 1898 cartoon showing Hearst and Pulitzer as culprits behind the Spanish-American War, that basically their uh, newspaper wars uh, uh, caused this. And let's see, Pulitzer's robe says, say young feller, watch, watch the tome I'm Sitome you gaspied, I'm a gusting, but don't push me, see, Pulitzer. Okay, and then say, this is my war, I bought and paid for it, and if you don't stop bothering me about it, I'll have to put you off the earth, see? P.S. Me name is Hoist. Okay. So that's that's what those say. Um, now, I'll get into this a little bit after the break, but the reason Hearst and Pulitzer look like they're wearing, like, toddler dresses um, is a reference to something called the Yellow Kid. The Yellow Kid was a cartoon. It, it originally was a standalone, like, one-frame kind of gag of what you and I might call a political cartoon, but it is now considered the origin of comic strips in the newspaper. It was started by uh, Pulitzer's newspaper. He hired a particular cartoon artist that I will talk about later, and he did The Yellow Kid for Pulitzer's newspaper. Then Hearst swooped in, offered that same comic artist a boatload more money if he would come and do this for Hearst's newspaper. So this, Um, comic artist went and did it for Hearst newspaper for a couple years before going back to Pulitzer. And so the yellow kid became uh a an icon at least for a time for both newspapers even though it originated with Pulitzer and because the uh, yellow kid was supposed to be this sort of bald little toddler who, who talks like this and so everything is written like a little bit phonetically like he's the lisping stammering kid and so both of them are dressed as the yellow kid in other words they are children arguing over blocks in the nursery playroom. And that's all this is, and they are creating a war out of it. So that that cartoon there, bottom uh, right, is uh, especially on the nose. A very, very shrewd commentary there. Yes, Zane.
1: There's a Yellow Kid cartoon on page 380 of our history textbook.
0: Yes. Yes, it is, because it's, it's during that section. I think it's Lesson 18, Chapter 18, where it talks about the Spanish-American War. Um but yes, um, so you can look. It's at 380. You said okay. So yeah, check out page 380 for another uh, full color. Uh, I, I think it's full color uh, uh, picture of the yellow kid, um, and we will. I will show you some more of him later. Yes. Is there any
1: meaning to the letters that are actually behind the two people standing there? Because it looks like a T and an M.
0: Okay, I don't think so. I have not read anything to that fact, but I also would not be surprised. Like the more I um, analyze art and music and television and all the rest, I I keep seeing layers of things. You know how like you can watch something like you know an animated Disney movie when you're like five, and you just love it because it's The Lion King. And then you watch it again when you're like 11 and you're like oh I don't remember that being there before and then you watch it as an adult and then if you're like me when I first saw The Lion King in theaters I almost walked out because I got so creeped out and it's during the song Be Prepared where Scar is rallying the hyenas and they were here for, that, that for a lifetime and What they're doing, and the reason I got so freaked out is because I was watching this, I was like, they modeled this off of the Nuremberg rallies of the 1930s. Like, they had the goose-stepping hyenas, they had the... Anyway, I, I I should. Somebody, I don't have a copy of The Lion King, but when we get to World War II, I need to borrow somebody's copy of The Lion King because I've tried to save that clip online. And Disney is like really persnickety about even clips of their stuff showing up on YouTube unless you've got this like weird, like love song or something running in the background that just ruins the experience. Um, so I can't save a clip, but if I can do. That if I can show you like that one song from The Lion King and then show you the film footage from the Nuremberg rallies, for me anyway, it made the hair on my head stand almost straight up. Like it was that, and it probably helped too that I was like 16 or 17 at the time and I had just had an in depth study of World War II at school, so I got it. But see, when you're five, you don't get it. You know, when you're, if you don't live back during the time, you don't get it. And so you have to study history in order to get all of those extra little layers of the phyllo dough of the moment to you know, really know what's going on. So no, I don't know of any significance on the lettering that's behind them, but that doesn't mean that it's not a thing. So, good question. Did I see something? Yes?
1: Now The yellow kid is actually responsible for uh, the situation. It's uh, responsible for the majority of the copyright laws we have now uh, they started taking effect after Pulitzer. Uh, I think it was Pulitzer got tired of fighting Hearst for the copyright law, and in the end, uh, Congress actually banned the Yellow Kid from any publications because of how bad it had gotten between uh, Hearst and Pulitzer.
0: Yeah, which is why it you know nobody really knows about it unless it shows up in a history textbook because it's it was legally banned from publication. But all right, so. Yellow journalism, characteristics of yellow journalism. Um, and honestly, if you cover the title and, like, that first line and just look at the characteristics, then, you know, yeah, maybe we're talking about the 1890s, but we're talking about 2021 as well. Like, this this applies to the Internet. Headlines, headlines. In huge print, bold print, if you're talking about the internet, often of minor news. I don't know how many notifications through this stupid news app, and it's supposed to call from like the the web um, sites and the the news agencies that I you know have asked for, but there's a lot that pops up on my news app that I'm just like. What? You know, why is this even here? I don't know how many notifications I got over 2020 of so-and-so dead at 34, so-and-so dead at 23, and probably 80% of them are influencers. It it wasn't a politician. It wasn't a president. It wasn't a a crown head of Europe. It wasn't, you know, uh, somebody from the Kennedy family, you know, somebody big in politics, but like... Makeup influencers from Brazil or someplace like that. I, I'm like, who, who is this? I mean, I'm, I'm sorry that they, they died and I'm sure their family is just devastated, but why is this headline news? Okay, often minor news, many pictures or imaginary drawings. Nowadays, instead of the imaginary drawings, we would have memes. Okay, that's where the memes come in. Faked interviews, misleading headlines, False information from so-called experts. Sound familiar? Dramatic sympathy with the underdog against the system. Yeah, pretty familiar. Emotional words and symbols scare tactics. So fear-mongering. So one of the things that has been up from the debate since pretty much like maybe last April or May um, is how much does it really help for people to wear masks and stay home while COVID is in full force. Like obviously, you need to be hygienic, you need to wash your hands, you you know, don't need to go to the hospital unless you work there or are a patient there. Like there's some common sense rules that obviously apply. Um, you know, now would be a great time to stop biting your nails if that is a bad habit that you happen to possess. Like there's there's some common sense there. But, you know, the the science indicates that being outside regularly, getting some vitamin D, eating well, getting plenty of rest, and just going about your daily life is in a lot of ways far more healthy than sanitizing yourself into a nub and triple masking as they're asking people to do in certain places. Like, I, I do good to breathe through one of these things. I don't know why I'm supposed to have three of these on my face. I don't know. So obviously there's a time and place for the masks as well. I mean, obviously, if you uh, work in a hospital, if you are have special permission to visit people in the hospital, you know certain businesses, if you work around food and, and food service, probably not a bad thing to you know not be breathing on the customer's food. But there's there's a lot of this that it's scare tactics or appears to be. And I know there's a lot of differing opinions out there and they run the whole gamut. But I I think everybody can agree that, you know, as far as like the official word of what we're supposed to be doing, that there's there's some definite question marks on either whether we should be doing certain things at all or whether certain rules like the mask rule should be taken to an extreme and a lot of it's fear-mongering because the more you can keep people in their isolated little bubbles and keep them cloistered in their home doing thing and just operating strictly through their screen then it it becomes a question of control really and back then the control was coming through the newspapers now it comes through this little device right here or this little device, or this big device here, like pick your screen time. It in the end, it comes out the same because somebody's controlling my apps here, somebody's inc- controlling my interwebs here, and somebody is controlling my streaming media here. It, it becomes an issue of control, and that's what we're talking about with yellow journalism: is manipulating the uh, the public awareness so that they empathize with certain people they disdain other people they sympathize with certain situations they ignore other situations and again this is not new this is not special to 2020 and 2021. this is something that's been a plague on the american consciousness pretty much since it ripped wide open in the 1890s yes
1: my parents and to an extent my grandparents uh, you know you always get that speech as a kid of oh are lucky to have like a whole 200 channels we like only five or whatever half of it was news and then the time yeah um they talk about how the news is only 15 minutes long with the weather at the end of it and i'm like well if they could do that then why are we having four hour news programs about garbage half the time yeah i'd rather go back to the 15 minutes of you know Walter Cronkite or whatever and then the yeah. two minutes of the weather it'll be raining tomorrow
0: yeah you know? we think maybe, <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> wake up tomorrow morning and double check us on this folks <laughs> yeah. yeah well and and the funny thing too is i think it was in the mid 90s when our television our local television network decided to add to the lineup this network of 24-hour news reporting called CNN and I remember this popping up on our, our dial and mom and dad and I like standing around the television, you know, looking at this thing going, they're just talking about the same things over and over and over. Why do we need 24-hour news coverage? It, it started with Desert Storm. Started with Desert Storm. Yep. That I remember. So uh, that would have been about what, 91? one? Ninety? Yeah. Yeah, 91 because I was I graduated high school in 91. Mm-hmm. So, I I remember but see, that is also um I guess it was Christmas or near Christmas of 90 when they did like the first barrage of bomb of bombs because I remember being at like Wednesday night youth when somebody walked in and said we just dropped bombs. On Iraq and everybody's like, whoa, really? And that is the first time I remember something happening in real time and getting instantaneous knowledge of the fact. Because up until that point, you know, you know, even for, for our generation, something would happen about it and you would find out the next day, or you would find out at the eleven o'clock news, you know, tune in at eleven, you know, lampooned in all sorts of cartoons. That's the way they used to do it. They would give you a burst of an update. You know, you know, interrupting for the special news bulletin and it would be at like, you know, two in the afternoon but all the facts would be in yet so they would tell you tune in at 11 so you would get the full report because you didn't get instantaneous news reporting. So, yeah. Pulitzer and Hearst. Um, interesting study in faces there. That, that's just an interesting compare and contrast right away. So, Joseph Pulitzer. Born in Hungary to Magyar, to a Magyar Jewish family. So a traditional Jewish family. Um, As a older child, younger teenager, he moved to Germany and from there he enlisted in the Union Army of the United States during the American Civil War. He enlisted from Germany, which apparently at the time was a legal recruitment move that you could do back then. Like they sent, you know, military talent scouts, basically, to other countries to recruit guys to come and fight in the war back home. Of course, now that's like hugely illegal. You can't do that anymore. But in the American Civil War, That was a thing. And so he got recruited to fight for the union and the guy who recruited him was supposed to get like a headhunting fee. Well, what Pulitzer did was that he went over to the United States, got there before the recruitment officer returned. He collected the bounty on himself and then he fought for one year. So he was a man of his word. He fought for one year before using that cash, that windfall, to start working in one odd job after another before unexpectedly landing a job offer with a German newspaper while he was in, I, I believe it was either New York or Washington DC. Um, and uh, I, I guess New York. And basically what happened is he was in the reading room of a local library and there were these two men who were playing chess and he started to give tips to these two guys, not knowing that they were editors of one of the largest newspapers in America at the time. And they realized from the conversation they had with him that he was exceptionally intelligent, very bright, knew a lot about the world, and obviously spoke a few languages by that point. And so they said, okay, we want you to be a correspondent for our newspaper. And of course, since he had lived in Germany, he was fluent in German. Well, within four years, the newspaper was going bankrupt due to mismanaging from his bosses, the guys who gave him the impromptu interview in the reading room of the library. And so he bought it from them. And he built that into his own newspaper empire and started it at the age of 25, which... That's, that's pretty young for having the reins on one of the most widely read newspapers, because obviously at this point, he's crossing out of German newspapers into English speaking newspapers, because he wants to reach a wider American audience. Um, and, and he's got the reins on this animal starting at age 25. Now, I don't know how many 25-year-old people are in your sphere of influence. There are some 25-year-olds out there that I would trust with my money, I would trust with my lives. There are a lot of 25-year-olds out there who still don't have a lick of sense, who wouldn't find their way out of a wet paper bag if they had a flashlight and a three-day head start. I do not want them running the world's news. Pulitzer, however, was one of those guys who he had the intellect and he had the character. Because honestly, after he collected the bounty on himself, you know, human reasoning is he should have just like skived off with it. But no, he upheld his obligation. He went ahead and served the year in the army for which he had been contracted. The only dishonest thing he did was he collected the money on himself. And, you know, in terms of reasoning of what was fair and right, he really probably had more entitlement to that money than the guy who had headhunted him, but he had character to go with it. William Randolph Hearst, by contrast, was not an immigrant, he was not Jewish, and he was not raised dirt poor. He was the only child of very wealthy parents um, who had an extensive stake in some mining interests in and around San Francisco. So the phrase uh, about being born with a silver spoon in your mouth, this would be Hearst. Um, Pampered, spoiled from day one, only child, um, all of the weight of the inheritance, the the responsibility following in his dad's footsteps, it was all on him. Um, His mother took him for a tour of Europe at age 10. So he got to see the world like Pulitzer did, but from a very different angle. Pulitzer was moving from place to place and learning languages and learning to make ends meet as he went. Hearst had everything given to him on a silver platter. He was a Harvard graduate. And while he was there, he showed that he had a flair for the dramatic. Um, He was part of the Hasty Pudding Club, which if you don't know what the Hasty Pudding Club is, add that to your list of things to Google now and then. Um, this is a theatrical group at Harvard, and because Harvard was traditionally only male, um, they would put on these theatricals, which meant that um, some of the men would have to dress in drag in order to perform the female parts of whatever play or skit they were doing. Now it's just turned into like some kind of like drag queen festival at Harvard every year, um, but. Uh, but the Hasty Pudding Club has prided itself over the years on um, taking theatricals very seriously. And apparently, Hearst had a real knack uh, for the for the dramatic. He had a stage presence, he had a booming voice, he was in the thick of it. He could be as over the top and ridiculous as the best of them. Um, so, So this part of his personality of wanting to be center stage, having the attention, commanding everyone's attention, commanding um, everybody's uh, sympathies, uh, and, and being able to um, work the crowd's opinions, <clears throat> it shows up there. Now, his father, meanwhile, this is while uh, Hearst was wrapping up college, um, he apparently had made a wager with someone, there was a gambling debt. I don't know all the details of this, but the person in order to pay his gambling debt to uh, Mr. Hurst Sr. um, gave him his newspaper as the fulfillment of his gaming debt because he didn't have enough cash. So he's like, here is my newspaper. It is worth, net worth of X amount of money. And it was a huge sum of money for the time. Here, I am signing this all over to you. This should clear the gambling debt that I have um, that you have come to collect. And so Hurst finds out about this, Hurst the son, and he begs his father for a chance to take this newspaper and make it like his pet project. And his father was not happy with this. He wanted his son to follow in his footsteps to go into the mining industry, to you know sit on the uh, as chairman of the board and, and all of this sort of thing. And Hearst said, "No, I want to do this newspaper." So his dad finally gave in. He gave Hearst the newspaper. Okay, this is a nationally known newspaper, and he became a newspaper magnate at age 25. And so you have these two very intelligent men who had traveled the world, they had seen a lot, they knew a lot, but with very different characters. You know, very different moral fiber backing them up. And they now control two of the most widely read newspapers in the United States by the age of 25. Now... You know, we can get into like which newspaper they started with and if they changed names and that sort of thing. By the time Pulitzer and Hearst start butting heads together, um, uh, what, we are, what we are seeing is a showdown between the world, which was Pulitzer's newspaper, and the New York Journal, which was Hearst's newspaper. So this is where the character of the two men really come out in interesting ways. Pulitzer came from poverty and so he championed the little man. Hearst came from wealth so he championed getting the scoop, getting the dirt on a person or a situation. Which when you have, I mean, not to make a blanket statement against all wealthy people, because obviously not all people of wealth are like this, but it does seem to be an overriding characteristic of most of them that when you have that much money and that much free time on your hands, you tend to sit around and gossip about everybody else and you're in everybody else's business and it doesn't help anything, but this is just what people do. This is where the tabloids and the paparazzi and entertainment news and all that, just like, it's just this constant wheelhouse because the rich and famous tend to sit around and talk about themselves, and Hearst was no stranger to that. So he just takes the gossip-mongering to a new level. He's out to get the scoop on people, whereas Pulitzer is saying, hey, I remember what it's like to be dirt poor. I remember what it's like to arrive in this country and not have a good command of the language, not know anybody, having to make my way in the world, so I'm going to use my power and influence to champion the little guy, to spotlight the plight, of immigrants and downtrodden people in this country. Um, Pulitzer also was known for thoughtful intellectual articles. Like Rhett said in the beginning, he did a lot of the the grunt work himself, both the illustrating and the writing, not to mention the mechanics of getting the newspaper out there. Um, But he was always known for having these very thoughtful articles that mold over all of the facts. Hearst was known for printing sensationalism at throwaway prices. So this is where, as part of the, the newspaper wars, this is where you get the newsboys down on the street. They um, are, they have to buy the, a stack of newspapers and then they get to sell those newspapers and the more newspapers they sell, and of course like they would buy the newspapers at like you know, two cents a copy and then sell them for 10 cents a copy, and then they would have to keep some money for, you know, taking home, but then some money would go back to buying more newspapers that they would, in turn, go and sell. So, the competitive competition between these two newspapers, even at the newsboy level, was pretty fierce. So, if you've ever watched um say uh the original like 1980 version of annie if you've ever seen uh the musical newsies um or just really any movie that is deeply set in like the 1920s um you get uh this sort of bickering rivalry between the different newsboy gangs essentially not like gangs what you and i think of as now as gangs but like they you know you had a group of boys that would represent one newspaper, a group of boys representing another, and they are trying to win customers and outbid customers, sell the newspapers, you know, try to get a New York Journal in their hand before they have a chance to buy a copy of the world or vice versa. And so, like, this fierce competition went straight down to the street level, quite literally. Um, a Pulitzer, eventually stooped to yellow journalism tactics to fight back at Hearst. Um, and and this is because by that point, Hearst was doing a lot of mudslinging, including a lot that was aimed at Pulitzer. Hearst, on his part, saw Pulitzer as his only worthy opponent, but it was a, a worthy opponent um, that he intended to defeat. So he set out to steal his readership. So this is when he starts um, appropriating uh, uh, Pulitzer's illustrators and even some of his uh, newspaper writers. Um, Pulitzer's reputation was eventually saved. He had about two years where he he sort of lost sight of the big picture and he got bogged down in this vicious newspaper war with Hearst. But his reputation was saved by the investigative reporting of Nellie Bly. More on her in a, in a minute. Um, And then Hearst, on the other hand, um, his focus switched to this new technology of radio. So he was the first media magnate to make the leap from newspaper to radio and to see the interconnection between those two. That That there are some people who are persuaded only if they see things in print, and then other people who are persuaded only if they hear it and different people operate in different ways. Some people have to hear the tone of voice. They have to hear the full articulate presentation. And then you have people like me that I don't want to hear people tell me the news. I want to read the article because I don't want any emotional inflection. I don't want anybody else putting their emphasis on words in a sentence. I want to be able to look at the sentences and if necessary, diagram the sentences so I can get to the core of what is really the subject and verb here. What is really going on here? So of course that's me because I'm a teacher and I'm a grammar teacher and I'm a lot of other things, but I prefer to see things in print. And then other people, you know, Nathan's this way. He's very auditory. He remembers almost anything he hears. And he, he parented something last night. He made a, a wisecrack about something that was really funny. But I was like, where did you pick up on that? And he's like, well, you know, that conversation that you and Miss Emily had, da, da, da. And I finally figured out what he's talking about. He was referencing a conversation from like two years ago. But see, if he hears it, it's in there. And so he would be the radio person. I would be the newspaper person. Everybody's a little bit different. Hearst was the first person to see the connection in cross-pollinating those two different um, media outreach. Methods. Okay. Nellie Bly. Okay. Add her to the Googling list. I should, I, I think next year, next time I teach modernity, I'm going to give everybody like a blank sheet with lines and just call it the Google list and just say, literally like add this person to the list because we can't go deep on this person, but you need to search them out later. Nellie Bly, now you don't have to copy down anything about her if you don't want to. This was originally the startup slide on um, like, on a completely different PowerPoint from American Experience, but this is Nellie Bly in a nutshell. Um, she was a 23-year-old journalist without a job when she walked into Joseph Pulitzer's offices and basically offered her services as a journalist. And of course, being a woman journalist in you know in that day and age um, was not very common. It wasn't impossible, but boy, you were you were swimming upstream if you were a female in the news reporting business. Um, and so she offered an interesting slant on journalism that had never been done before. Now we have a name for it. It's called investigative journalism. This is when the journalist doesn't just like show up at the scene of the crime or at the political rally or the inauguration and take pictures and interview people and investigative journalist goes into a situation and tries to experience it from the inside and then report back and say, hey, I have been there, I I ate at the homeless shelter with these people. I have talked with these homeless veterans. I have heard their stories. And, and this is what it really looks like at street level. Nobody had ever done this before. Well, between her and Pulitzer, this was the thing that saved Pulitzer's newspaper and pulled him out of the mudsling with Hearst. Um, he gave her this daunting assignment of exposing the horrors of Blackwell's Island Insane Asylum. This is an island... Off uh, uh, there, uh, just off the, the coast of New York, um, very near New York City, and if you were insane, then you were shipped off to this mental asylum, and you were basically never heard of again, because the, the island was not easy to get to, it wasn't even like you could go and visit Mom on weekends or anything. Like once it was a one-way ticket, like the only people who came on and off this island were the people who worked there. Um, And so uh, there were a lot of rumors about this place, but there was no way to prove anything, uh, like the treatment of the patients, because it was removed, it was an island, and the only way for someone who was not a worker and sworn to secrecy to get into the asylum was to be committed as a patient. And so Nellie Bly and Joseph Pulitzer came up with this idea. Nellie would pretend to be insane And she had to do a good job of it because you had to have three different um, doctor assessments, like three different doctors look at you in order to certify you as being crazy enough to go to Blackwell's. And um, she would get herself admitted, and then after so many days, Pulitzer would travel to Blackwell Island and check her out. He would, at that point, expose it like, oh, actually... This woman is completely saying she's working for me. I'm here to check her out now. And then Nellie would be able to drop the, you know, the facade and she would be able to go home and then she would be able to write a tell-all about Blackwell's asylum from the inside. Now, there were so many ways that this could have gone wrong. This could have gone horribly, terribly wrong. It didn't. This is one of those times where everything happened right on the money. Because honestly, if Pulitzer had dropped over from a heart attack, if he had had a change of heart, if he was like, oh wait, look at the time. I was supposed to be you know, in London giving a speech for the queen and I need to catch my boat. I'll be back in six months. Like there are so many things that could have gone wrong where he, uh, where it could have prevented her ever coming out of Blackwell's ever again. But it didn't. She played the crazy part, and apparently she played it pretty well because all three doctors signed off on her. One of them in particular said that she was the worst case of um, uh, mental illness that he had ever seen in his life. She got committed to Blackwell's, I believe she stayed about 10 days before Pulitzer uh, came and checked her out. And and then she came back and she did the tell-all. And Pulitzer's uh, paper absolutely exploded. Now, Hearst tried to, you know, wrench things back in his favor again, but Nellie Bly, she was full on Pulitzer's team at that point. She then proposed the idea that she would put Jules Verne's uh, uh, most well known work of the time to the test and she would try to get around the world in 80 days. And she would give a news update by telegram um, or by letter, you know, she would uh, leave word with a newspaper of whatever city she stopped in. And so this became the breathtaking drama of the day. You know, people were buying up the world like nothing. Like they would, even if it was more expensive than the New York Journal or or whatever, they would buy the world because they had to know that next update on Nellie Bly. Did she make it to the next one? Because she would, you know, say, "I'm, I'm here, I'm doing this, I've met these people. I anticipate being at this location by this date. And so people were just like, they were not going to miss getting their episode of the world because they had to know where in the world was Nellie Bly. And uh, she did make it in under 80 days, much to everyone's surprise, including Jules Verne, who didn't think she could do it. So anyway, Pulitzer, amazing man, lots of reasons why the Pulitzer Prize is named after him. Um... But Nelly Bar, uh, N- Nelly Bar, Nelly Bly is just one sidebar in the man's illustrious career. Okay, um, the Yellow Kid and copyright issues. We've already mentioned this. This is the um, sort of the nutshell version. Um, Utcolt or Outcult, uh was the car- cartoonist who originated the Yellow Kid. This is considered the beginning of American comic strips. Uh, He was a staple in Pulitzer's uh, newspaper, The World, until Hearst essentially poached Utkalt, and Utkalt switched to his newspaper. In his absence, Pulitzer hired another cartoonist by the name of George Lukes, or Lucas maybe, to draw a similar character and this is where the whole copyright issues come to the fore. Now I will say that even before The Yellow Kid burst on the scene, copyright issues um, were already very much on the table as something uh, that was contentious and being considered thanks to another man you may have heard of by the name of Mark Twain. So. short version of that, in the late 1800s, there were a lot of authors um, on both sides of the pond, um, most notably Charles Dickens, uh, Lewis Carroll, and Mark Twain, whose books were so wildly successful that as soon as their next masterwork was published, everybody and their brother seemed to be publishing their own version of whatever had just been written. Um, by the the more famous author. In fact, uh, Lewis Carroll famously stopped at only two Alice books, you know, Alice in Wonderland and Alice Through the Looking Glass. He never wrote a third one and when his fans would write into him, he said, I can't do it. There's so many imposters out there with um, you know, Margaret through the turnstile, or uh, Lucy in the magic nursery, or like they—they they were just such blatant fan fiction, as such, essentially at the time. He said that it—it it takes all the joy out of it. I can't write anymore, Alice, because the imposters won't let me. And um, Dickens had similar issues. Mark Twain had similar issues. So um, Mark Twain, I believe, is the one who coined with limited success, the idea of intellectual property. Um, But it was the Yellow Kid that took that debate and blew it sky high and wide open. Um, And then this is when the copyright laws really started to lock into place in America. And then of course, this is um, one of the better known um, Yellow Kid uh, comics. And there was always something written on his little yellow smock and it was always written in this sort of like street urchin slang. Well Holly G here's to you. I think that was supposed to be a New Year's cartoon one year. And I don't know why Holly G unless that's supposed to be um, a variation on Golly G which back then people would have been a lot more sensitive to any derivation of taking God's name in vain, which golly would have been considered one of those, more than just gosh or you know ye gods or, or some of the other uh, euphemisms for taking God's name in vain. So rather than golly gee, it's holly gee. Um, so sensitive at the time, actually, that when I, I think I mentioned to you when we did a Christmas carol um, that whenever a Christmas carol was first put on stage, that they wouldn't even allow the name of God to be used on stage unless it was a direct quotation of Scripture. Like, that was the law in Britain. And so, you know, Tiny Tim saying God blesses everyone would uh, had to be changed to, like, you know, saints bless us or mercy bless us, everyone. Like, it's it, it didn't work as well. Um, but that's that's why the Holy G little jargon backstory for you there. And it's interesting too, I, by the time I get to this point in the timeline, I have more videos, more cartoons, more photographs than I could possibly use for any given topic, like pick a topic, any topic. Um, And so one of the things that I passed up, some very shrewd individual in reporting on the politics of 2020 pulled out the yellow kid motif and use that for an interesting commentary on the whole Trump versus Biden scenario. Um, <clears throat> I'll have to see if I can find that one again. But, but the Yellow Kid has been resurrected on occasion even though um, it was banned from publication for a long time um, because it had become such a toxic symbol of the newspaper wars between um, Pulitzer and Hearst. Yes? Have
1: you seen the newspapers from this era like a copy of the world or something it's insane how different they are they're um they're almost like paintings more than newspapers in some ways yeah Uh, because i mean you had to think they didn't have tv this was there had to be something to catch your eye to to get you to read it other than this giant headline that we have now right it's like the pictures of the newspapers it's It's insane. Well, well, some of them
0: were were photographs, some of them were hand-drawn, and then even just, like, the advertisements of the time.
1: Like, bright pages. Or or just, like,
0: how they were formatted, you mean, like, with the headlines and things?
1: there would be, like, drawings all over it. It wouldn't just be, like, there wasn't a cartoon section. Cartoons were throughout the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Or, like, uh, in between articles. it It was almost a controlled chaos of how the the paper was structured. It's so yes. weird because we don't
0: have that. Well, and and, and I, that was one of the things that um, sort of led to the rise of the Yellow Kid in that because he was a single, like a single square, and it usually wasn't very big. And so it was almost like the original Where's Waldo? Like you would get another copy of the world and you knew that the Yellow Kid would be in there somewhere and there would be like this, there would be a a certain pose, there would be something funny written on his smock, but you had to find him. So you're, you're going through the newspaper looking for the yellow kid and on your way you're noticing other things and, oh, I found the yellow kid, hey, that's funny. <laughs> okay, now I thought I saw something else back here. And of course, you know, a lot of businessmen, of course, would just sit down and then you just start at the beginning of the newspaper and read all the way through, but a lot, most people, I think, would just read just the parts that were interesting to them. But the yellow kid was one of those gimmicks those original gimmicks that was supposed to pull you into the newspaper to find the yellow kid and see what witty saying he had for the day. Okay, a final word. Yellow journalism sounds a great deal like the fake news epidemic of our own time. Neff said. Even with copyright laws guarding intellectual property on the internet is difficult at best. I know J.K. Rowling had a difficult time uh, when she was still churning out the Harry Potter novels to keep fan fiction and um, uh, you know alternate versions of Harry Potter uh, from being printed and published and put out um, you know uh, under, if not under her name but under uh, cover work that looked suspiciously like um the cover work of the original books um and, and she's she's not the only one um uh stephanie myers the author of the twilight series um put the kibosh she had originally intended on writing the twilight series and then i think originally what she was intending to do was to write the series again but doing it from edward's point of view because you know the twilight series is written from bella's point of view so she was going to write from Edward's point of view, but somebody somehow got a hold of like her opening chapters and leaked it to the internet. And of course that, that's when she just like, okay, I'm I'm just not gonna do this. If I can't even trust my fans to leave my intellectual property alone, then I'm just I'm just gonna walk away from this. Because she ended up printing the first book from Edward's point of view, but she waited like 10 years. Um, because of the breach of copyright, uh, of intellectual property. And of course, this also sets the stage for um, you know, intellectual property, not just of the written word, but of also designs, ideas, uh, cartoons, images, trademarks. You know, That Nike swoop, it's a very particular swoop. And if, if you're branding your thing, whatever it is, and it looks too much like the Nike swoop, then you know it's a copyright infringement and it's just for a glorified check mark, basically. Um, tendency of human nature is to cash in on a trend. Hello, 2021. Hello, Snapchat. Hello, YouTube and Instagram. Um, public opinion or even public fears. But truth, genuine truth, is never sensationalized. It stands on its own and does so without cheapening the people or the ideas that it exposes. So even in ancient Israel, when Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well, he exposed her sin in under two sentences. But he did so without cheapening the person that he had come to save. That is genuine truth and grace and mercy all rolled into one. Yes. Did now, I say hand up?
1: With the copyright you were talking about, the alternate versions of books or uh, you know sequels to books being leaked, uh, music artists in the early two thousands and late nineties had a huge problem with uh, record companies <laughs> yeah. would take this is the new such and such album, we're gonna put it in this huge computer bank with all these other albums, and it'll stay there, and it'll be safe. Mm -hmm. And then hackers would come along, or a leak would spring somewhere, and people would get these whole albums and push them out there and be like, hey, I found such and such's new number one album, and you can get it six months before it releases for five bucks for me and you had massive problems of
0: massive piracy issues going on in the late night because the internet changed everything and it changed the music industry in particular in particular in massive ways um, but even before the internet um, you know copyright even extending to musical intellectual property uh, the one that comes to mind okay i'm going to think okay david bowie and Vanilla Ice. All right, so when Vanilla Ice burst onto the scene in like late 80s, early 90s with Ice Ice Baby, that's probably like one of those old school tunes that y'all have heard of. Um, it has that sort of addictive drumming beat in background that dun 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 dun. That little beatboxing kind of repetitive refrain is taken Directly from a a David Bowie song, Under Pressure, which I think he sings with Freddie Mercury of Queen fame. Um, So, you know, David Bowie and Freddie Mercury recorded this song in like the late 70s, early, early 80s, like obviously before Freddie Mercury died. Um, And it was a runaway hit. And then Vanilla Ice released his tune. Of course, you know, David Bowie's only been dead a couple of years, so um, David Bowie picked up on this and he's like, no, you stole, you know, th- this is copyright infringement, because you stole this signature note, this signature, you know, little beatboxing moment that everybody knows belongs to my song. And so there was actually this big lawsuit between David Bowie And Vanilla Ice with Vanilla Ice saying, "No, I came up. This is my own invention. It just happens to sound the same." And, and of course, David Bowie's camp's like, "Mm, "No, no, it is exactly the same. Like if you listen to Under Pressure, and then you listen to Vanilla uh, to the Ice Ice Baby, it's the exact same little just over and over and over throughout the whole song. Big copyright lawsuit waiting right there."
1: He actually did add one note. So
0: that was, <laughs> that, that was the thing that he kept trying to stand on. It's like I added this one pitch. That's the same as changing one adjective and saying I didn't plagiarize. that. <laughs> it's, it's the entire you know article on the Bolsheviks. But because I you know eliminated all of the adjectives, we actually had a student do that. Like the second or third year, we were open as a school way back in the day and and she actually tried that it was like copy and paste this whole article about the Bolshevik she turned it in as her final paper for a class and and she tried to um, stand on the leg that because she had removed certain adjectives and had eliminated like one sentence from each paragraph that she had not plagiarized <laughs> from Brit- Britannica.com yeah okay so Oh, just as a parting idea, even though the, the world of newspapers, are long ago, and obviously you do not have to copy this. This is just FYI, just sort of feast your brain on this for a second. Um, you know, newspapers have had their heyday. They're still around, but not nearly the driving force that they used to be. The Hearst Corporation, as of 2012, when I originally put uh, the bulk of this um, PowerPoint together, Um, these were the different newspapers magazines and uh, television channels that the Hearst Corporation this is directly descended descending from uh, William Randolph Hearst's original Empire all of this is still controlled by the Hearst family now obviously the internet has changed some things a lot of magazines have gone away and If they are still around instead of getting um, uh, an issue say every month you're getting one like you know six months out of the year four months out of the year a lot of them have gone to Kindle versions but some of these that are in that magazine list they are still out there, you know, Cosmopolitan, bless you, L, uh, LA, uh, LA, Harper's Bazaar, Marie Claire, uh, The Oprah Magazine, 17, Red Book, Town and Country, Woman's Day, and then you know like HGTV has turned into a whole television network. Um, so, you know, obviously if, if I went back and updated this, um, things have changed since 2012, but there's still enough here where you can tell that the Hearst family, they made the leap from newspaper to radio and then from radio to television and then from television to magazines and uh, TV broadcast, like whole channels. Like it's sort of like the, the Leviathan that just doesn't stop it. Like it's still there, it's just mutated a bit to fit the media outlets of the day and age. That wraps it up for this episode. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.